Well, this evening we're opening in the Word of God to Romans chapter 8, please. So Romans chapter 8, as I mentioned on the Lord's Day, we're continuing on just and for another evening looking at the subject of the assurance of salvation. Romans chapter 8, just to read some verses from this chapter and then well, we'll come back to them later on. Romans chapter 8 and commencing, we'll break in at verse 8 and read through to verse 17. So Romans 8 verse 8, let's hear the word of the Lord. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received a spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received a spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And of children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless his word to our heart. Let's just have a moment, please, once again in prayer, and look to the Lord to bless even as we gather around his word and his truth. Eternal God and loving Father, we thank thee and bless thee for that wonderful hymn. And we rejoice, O God, for what we have and who we are in Christ Jesus. We thank the Lord that we are the sons, the daughters of God. We thank thee we've been born from above. We rejoice, O God, that we are thine, and not for the years of time alone, but for all eternity. Lord, we come into thy holy and thy sacred presence. We thank thee for all thy blessings to us in the day that has gone by. We thank thee for thy faithfulness. We thank thee, Lord, for thy love and thy care and the provision of many, many good and blessed gifts. And Lord, now as we come to gather around your word, we pray that you'll give help, help in the preaching and help in the hearing. I pray, O God, that thou would forgive me of my daily sin, wash me from my defilement in the blood of the Lamb, and fill me with the Holy Ghost. By faith I take the promised Spirit, and I pray that he will help me, help me to speak and deliver what thou hast given. Be a blessing to your people, a comfort to their heart, a strengthening of them in their faith, and most of all, to glorify thine own and precious name. So hear us, Lord, and do us good. For this I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake and glory. Amen. Now, in the farming industry, there is something called the Farm Quality Assurance Scheme. And it gives assurances of quality of the production, of production methods used, the quality of care for the animals, the quality of the farm environment, and above all, the assurance to the customer of the quality of the lamb or the beef which they are going to eat, that it's wholesome, that it's safe, that it's free from unnatural substances. 
And people always want assurances that what they have is the real, the genuine thing. It's something that they can trust in. Well, the salvation that Christ has secured for His people, it is the real, it is the genuine thing. We can be assured that the Lord, when He says He has forgiven us of our sin and that we shall never perish, well, that is exactly what He means. We can be assured of that very fact. Now, this week, as I said, we're continuing on with the subject of blessed assurance that we began to look at a couple of weeks ago. And the last time we considered in the first place the definition of assurance. Assurance of salvation is the confidence or the state of certainty that a Christian has about their own salvation. The Westminster Confession states, Such as truly believe on the Lord Jesus, and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace. Assurance of salvation, as I said, it's more than a feeling. It's more than a concept. It is to know with full conviction and with entire confidence that it's well with one's soul. And that's what assurance of salvation is. The second point we thought about was the deficiency of assurance and why it is that people often lack the assurance of their own salvation. This is something that most if not all Christians, will at some point encounter in their life. And I gave a number of reasons why that can come upon them. Ignorance, number one, of the gospel truth. Guilt over past sin. Uncertainty of when they were saved. Temptation of the flesh. Trials. Disobedience and sin. Living in uh, sin that's not confessed. And also strong preaching can bring as it were, that lack of assurance upon the soul. And so it's something that is common, I would say, to most, if not all, Christians. But the final thing we considered was the duty of attaining assurance. Since the Lord desires us to have full assurance, then to quote the confession again, it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure. Assurance is both the birthright and the privilege of every true believer. It is something that we ought to seek after, and it is possible in this life to come to the place that we can say along with the words of the Apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So I want to continue on this evening with the subject of assurance. And I want to do so under two headings. Firstly, and the major point tonight will be the doctrine of assurance. And then secondly, very briefly at the end, the delight of assurance. So firstly, the doctrine of assurance. The doctrine of assurance, well, it really falls within the realm of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's interesting that in our own Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, which I said last time is entitled of Assurance of Grace and Salvation, it follows on from chapter 17, which is entitled Perseverance of the Saints. And that stands to reason, for you could never have assurance if there was no such thing as perseverance. The eternal security of the believer, it is clearly set forth in Scripture. 
And we thought about that a couple of Sunday nights ago. I made brief comments in John chapter 10 and the verse 28. Christ said there, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And there we have a triple lock of really the eternal security, the the perseverance uh, of God's children. A triple lock that we shall never perish. There is no final apostasy that is possible to the true child of God. And the reason being is that total apostasy, well, it would mean the eradication in that Christian of the new man. It would also mean that one who God has declared to be justified, and one who has been adopted, accepted in adoption, well, they would have to ultimately be condemned and rejected. And that's an impossibility. Those whom God has justified, as we read in Romans chapter 8, what will He do with them? He will glorify them. And since this is the case concerning our salvation, that the Lord will preserve, we will persevere because He perseveres with us. And I was hearing that today in the class as I was sitting in there. And by the way, I was just hoping I wouldn't be asked any questions because I don't know if my memory could recall, but there was a question posed not to me. And, well, I actually had it, so if it come to me, I actually had the answer in my mind. But since this is the case, since we persevere, and it is because God perseveres with those who are uh, growing in holiness, since this is the case, well, how do we then come into full assurance of faith? What is our assurance based on? Well, I want to quote section 2 of our confession Again, which summarizes it, what it's based on, and then I want to expand on it. This is it. This certainty, or we could say assurance, is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded, here we go, upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. The inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. Which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption? Now, that's a lot there. But there's three things contained in that. There's a threefold aspect to this matter of our assurance. It's contained in here. What it's founded on. How we can come into full assurance. The three things the divine truth of the promise of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces, and the testimony of the Spirit. So there's the three things. Now, Andrew Bonner, in his sermon, What Gives Assurance? He says that people usually go about seeking assurance in one of two ways, the long and indirect way, or the short and the direct way. Now, to Bonner, the short and the direct way turns our attention to the Word of God and the promises of salvation. It focuses on Christ and what He has done. The indirect way, or the long way, according to Bonner, is to ascertain not really what Christ is and what He has done, but what we are. In other words, to look at the inward evidences of those graces that you might expect to find in one who is truly born again. Now, while there's an element of subjectivism in that, 
looking at the inward graces in the individual to whom the promises of salvation are given, well, this is not to be discounted. Because the Bible does give us many tests by which we can examine our profession to see if it is the real and genuine thing. And that brings us into a measure, a measure of assurance. In the book of 1 John, and that's really where we started out in this study, 1 John 5, 13, I believe it is, when John writes there, These things have I written unto you, that ye might know ye have eternal life. But in the book of 1 John, we have a number of marks of the true Christian by which we can examine ourselves. And I want to give them to you briefly starting from the start of that epistle. Number one, the true child of God will not live in sin or error. They will not live in sin. I didn't say they won't commit sin, but they will not live in sin or error. 1 John chapter 1, and this will be brief comments, verse 6. 1 John 1 verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with Him, So here's someone who's professing that they're in fellowship with the Lord and union with Him. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. We can couple this with what is said in 1 John 3, verses 7 and 8, but I'll not read that reference for sake of time. Number two, the true child of God will enjoy fellowship with the Lord. The next verse, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Now, I know some take this as fellowship with one another Christians, but we can also take this as fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, fellowship with the Spirit. That's who is first and foremost in view. And because of that, then we have fellowship the one with the other. But there we have it. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Number three, the true child of God will have, still have a deep awareness of their sin. 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. English Puritan Richard Baxter, he wrote a book about heaven called The Saints of Everlasting Rest. And in it he said this about the awareness of sin as a sign of salvation. I think if I could stand and mention all the other marks of grace, it would appear that the life and truth of them all lieth in this one, that the individual is conscious of sin. Number four, the true child of God will live in conscious obedience to the Word of God. 1 John 2 and the chapter 2 and the verses 2 and 3. Sorry, 3 and 4. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. No one but Christ has ever perfectly kept the commandments of God and obeyed the commandments consistently. Nevertheless, obedience to the word of God characterizes the lifestyle of his disciples. Number five, the true child of God will despise the world and its ways. Chapter two again in verse 15, love not the world, 
neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know the word world there? It's speaking of the world system, the world's ways, the way of the ungodly, not the created world, but those things that characterize the ungodly and what they live for. Number six, the true child of God longs for Christ's return and longs to be like Him. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself even as He is pure. Number seven, the true child of God will sacrificially love other Christians and will want to be with them. Verse 14 in the same chapter, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. And the last one, well, I could give more, but number eight, the true child of God will enjoy listening to the doctrines of Christ expounded and will be able to discern what is of the truth. 1 John 4, in the verse 6, We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. Remember, that's John speaking. And he goes on to say, He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we are uh, we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You were talking to people and talking about the things of God and they haven't a clue what you're on about. That's because they're not the Lord's. But God's people, no matter where they're from, what country, or maybe what church they would hang their hat at, if they are the Lord's, they will know what you're talking about. There'll be that fellowship. They'll be able to discern. There's someone who loves and knows the Lord and knows the gospel and stands up for Christ, the blood and for the book. And these are just a few of our, the things by which we can test ourselves to see if we are the Lord's and the truth is in us. However, John Newton, in a sermon of the assurance of faith, he warns this. This is what he warns. If inherent sanctification, or we could say these marks, be considered as the proper ground of assurance, those who are most humble, sincere, and desirous of being conformed to the will of God will be the most perplexed and discouraged in their search after it. For they will be the least satisfied with themselves, and have the liveliest sense of innumerable defilements. And this is why in our confession, inward evidences comes second. The short and the direct way, according to Bonner, to the assurance of salvation rests on the objective revelation of God's Word, which centers on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the divine truth of the promises of salvation comes first in our confession. It is first and foremost. That's how we gain our assurance, by looking in the Word of God, the objective revelation of God. The other can be subjective. We can tend to maybe go easy on ourselves. Oh, well, look, I do love the brethren. In fairness, I do like the fellowship. Because you know what's at stake. You know what's at stake if you say, well, well, I don't really love the brother. I don't really live in obedience. And that's why it comes second. It's not to be discounted because the true child of God 
they will see those marks in them in the Scripture, and it brings that measure of assurance, but it does not bring them into full assurance. Full assurance, I believe, is by looking to the objective revelation of God, which is a revelation of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As D.L. Moody said, maybe not reformed, but we'll quote him anyway, it's the blood alone that makes us safe, but it's the word alone that makes us sure. How true that is. It is who Christ is and what He has done as revealed in the Word of God, applied to the, by the Spirit, that gives the child of God full assurance. Assurance doesn't spring from the power of positive thinking, but it comes from the power of the gospel. Our assurance of faith is grounded on the facts of Scripture and not how we feel we're doing in the Christian life. It was Martin Luther who said, Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the Word of God. Naught else is worth believing. The basis of our assurance is the Word of God. And that which is revealed in the Word of God which gives us assurance. And what is that? Christ. As Paul refers to him in 1 Timothy 1 verse 1, Christ are what? Our hope our confidence, our assurance. And this is the whole thrust of the teaching that we find in Hebrews 10. And that's a portion that a preacher or even you as a Christian should turn to if you're counseling someone concerning their lack of assurance or if someone has doubts over their salvation. That's the portion to turn to. And I can't and don't have time to exegeted or exposited tonight. But from Hebrews 10, we can pick out a few highlights off it if you want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 10. In the opening verses, in one, verses 1 to 4, we have, and we're shown the inability of the old Mosaic dispensation of the covenant to take away sin. If the animal sacrifices could have secured and brought and made full atonement, well, then they would not have needed to be offered every year. Now, this is not to think that there was no real purpose in the ceremonial law, for it did serve its function in pointing to the reality of who and what it foreshadowed, the Lord Jesus Christ and His work, which we go on to read about in verse 5 and following. And we have the sufficiency of Christ's work outlined in verse 12. Wonderful words. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down in the right hand of God, the sufficiency of his work. And then in verse 14, we have the efficiency of Christ's work, the effect of it. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, them that have been set apart unto salvation. What a statement that is. He hath perfected forever. He has perfected you. Forever. The atonement Christ made was of such a nature that it secured and it guaranteed the perfection, the glorification of each one for whom he died. The confession it speaks there of an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. And you know, we have the promise 
of God's salvation summarized down in the next verses. Verse 16. This is the covenant. Here's where our assurance that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart. There's a new heart. And in their minds will I write them. And here's the forgiveness of sins. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. It's in the light of that, what Christ has done and who Christ is, that Paul goes on to say, having therefore, brethren, boldness or confidence to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. He goes on to say, let us draw near with a true heart in what? In full assurance of faith. In the light of who Christ is and what Christ has done as it's revealed in the objective revelation of God's Word. God is the faithful and the just God. He's faithful in that He will do what He has promised to do. That's all from the forgiveness of our sins to the performing of the good, good work that has begun in us until the day of Jesus Christ. But He's also just in that He will not, He cannot exact legal punishment upon a saint for whom full atonement has been made by Jesus Christ. It would be a violation of His righteousness and a miscarriage of His justice. And there are so many hymns that speak about that glorious truth in the Christian church. Augustus Top Lady's hymn, a great example, from whence this fear and unbelief have God the Father, hath not the Father put to grief? His spotless Son for me. And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged in me? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid, whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? And then you know, the other verses concerning that, that justice God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Looking away to Christ in the Scripture is where our assurance is found first and foremost. But there is that third strand, I said in our confession. There is the divine promises of salvation, the truth of the promises, the Word of God, the objective Word. And then there is the inward graces, we could say that's more subjective. But they will be present in the child of God. But then the third strand concerns the Holy Ghost and the witness that He makes with our spirit. And that brings us to where we read this evening. Romans chapter 8 and the verses 12 to 16 or 12 to 17. And that's the key portion concerning this. The witness of the spirit. The Holy Ghost, what does He do? He bears witness to our sonship, that we are the children of God. Now, this is an internal witness. And we see that from verse 16. It says there, the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit. It's not something that's whispered in our ear by God, like, you're my child. That would be an external witness. It's not. It's an internal witness. And while an internal witness, it's not a subjective feeling. Low emotions and 
love to God, they're very real. But this is something that would stand up to the scrutiny of God's court. You see, the word witness here, it can also be translated to bear testimony, and that's legal terminology. So this is a witness that can be examined, that would stand up in God's court. This is not someone saying, well, the Holy Spirit told me I'm saved, so I must be saved. What, what does this mean? I found this interesting in, in studying this. There, in the context, there are two ways which the Spirit bears witness that we are the children of God. Now, there's other ways, but there's two in the immediate context here. Firstly, in verse 14, let's read that. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The work of the Spirit leading us is the Spirit witnessing in our lives that we are the Lord's. His work in us provides the evidence. And that's what witnesses do. They give the evidence of reality. And being led by the Spirit is the same as walking in the Spirit living in the Spirit. It's the same as bearing fruit, the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. And this is a way that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. How? By the production of fruit in us. That can stand up to scrutiny in God's court. But the second way in which He bears witness or gives evidence is by the production of prayer from us the production of fruit in us, and the production of prayer from us. And that we find in verse 15. But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. When the Holy Ghost testifies to us that we are the children of God, He at the same time pours into our hearts such confidence and love that we adventure to address the great God of heaven as what? Our Father our Father. And here are two ways in which the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The production of fruit in us and the production of prayer from us. There's other ways. Witnessing, He, he leads us into truth. We're, we're able to discern in the Word of God. It is the Holy Spirit's ministry as a comforter to lead the believer into the understanding of what they have in Christ Jesus. It is his office to bring them into full assurance. He does that three times it's mentioned in the New Testament. He brings them into the full assurance of understanding. That's mentioned in Colossians chapter 2 in the verse 2, where the Holy Ghost is the one who gives the believer a grasp of the gospel. He also brings them into the full assurance of faith. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. And that's the Holy Ghost showing us the sufficiency and the efficiency of the work of Jesus Christ and that He's worthy to be trusted in. And then He also brings us into the full assurance of hope. Hebrews chapter 6 and the verse 10 in which we have this confidence that we're secure in Christ and we will make it home to heaven. The work of the Spirit, which we are the beneficiaries of, 
is testament to the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And what is the indwelling of the Spirit? Well, it is the earnest. It is the down payment. It is the guarantee. As we're taught in Ephesians 1.14 or 1 Corinthians 1.22, that we have been sealed unto the day of redemption. And from that assurance flows. And that's why our confession has the three strands. The divine truth of the promises of salvation, the Word of God. Then the inward graces of those to whom the promises are given. And all the while the Holy Spirit giving witness and sealing us unto the day of redemption. That's the doctrine of assurance. And child of God, we can be brought into that. We should seek that. We should desire that. And that brings me to my last point. Briefly, very quickly, the delight of assurance. The delight of assurance. Back to the confession. The confession states that coming to full assurance, the believer's heart, and I quote, may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. It is also in full assurance that the Christian can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Thomas Brooks, he said this, a well-grounded assurance is always attended with three fair handmaidens, love, humility, and holy joy. How could you be confident? How could you rejoice? Or how could you have peace if you could lose your salvation at any time? If it could be taken from you? The fact is, you couldn't. You couldn't. The very fact that the Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring a person, a child of God, to full assurance, it corresponds to the fact that the Spirit or that that the Savior has made full atonement. And get that into your heart. The very fact that it is the Spirit's ministry to bring a child of God into full assurance, it corresponds to the fact that the Savior has made full atonement. In Romans 15, in the verse 13, we read, Now the God of hope, so He is, who He is, what He's done for us in Christ Jesus, gives us the hope, the confidence, the assurance. The God of hope, what? Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing what? Well, what is revealed about Christ and His person and His work and coming to full assurance of that? And then we abound in hope through what? The power of the Holy Spirit. Full assurance gives the child of God joy and love, but it also gives a Christian zeal for the God they love. Those who are fully assured will serve the Lord. A person would not do much for something they doubted. Horatius Bonner, he made this comment, uncertainty 
as to our relationship with God is one of the most enfeebling and dispiriting of things. It makes a man heartless. It takes a pith out of him. He cannot fight. He cannot run. He is easily dismayed and gives way. He can do nothing for God. But when we know that we are of God, we are vigorous, brave, invincible. There is no more quickening truth than this of assurance. Blessed assurance. Isn't that what Fanny Crosby wrote about? Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Surely it is, because the one who is assured of their salvation has what? Has heaven begun below. Every believer has. They will have their doubts. But it's not presumptuous. And it's not presumption to know that we have eternal life. In fact, that's what the Lord desires. And that's one of the reasons why the book was given. These things have I written unto thee, that ye may know ye have eternal life. May the Lord bless his word to our heart for his own name's sake. We'll have a word of prayer and then we'll sing another hymn just before the Reverend Greer comes to preach. Or sorry, not to preach. I was going to say, we're, we're, we're the brethren there, <laughs> a two-by-two ministry, to bring the announcements and then get down to our time of prayer. So let's, let's just pray. Father in heaven, well, we thank thee for your word, and we thank thee, Lord, we can look away to Jesus Christ, the ground, the hope of our assurance. Lord, we thank thee, Lord, that we can also, Lord, yes, look to ourselves, the inward graces, those to whom the promises have been given. Lord, we pray that you would develop these more and more in their lives. You would give us a greater love for thee, a greater love for the brethren, a greater zeal, a greater passion. May we so ground it in the truth, Lord. Oh, the old devil, surely this is one of his main focal points of attack. He knows if he can get us to doubt. He knows if he can get us to lack assurance. Well, we'll not be so quick to speak. We'll not be so quick to pray. Lord, we pray that you'll strengthen our faith and you'll sanctify us by your truth. Lord, remember us even now as we sing thy praise. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.